Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Faram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. For today's episode, I wanted to focus on something different. And I wanted to talk about an issue that I have discussed at length in previous episodes. Uh, and I felt that the amount of description that we've gone through it, I felt that it was time to bring in an expert opinion on the issue, which is why I wanted to bring forth my first podcast interview for this podcast series. And I wanted to interview a good friend and a very good member of uh, the Muslim community who's done a lot of work in the areas of masjid security and in the areas of public safety. And I wanted to introduce my friend, Yunus Imam. How are you doing, Yunus? Hey, Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me on. I'm very honored. Yunus Imam, for those of you who don't know, is an expert in the field of emergency management and is highly trained in the fields of public safety. He currently volunteers with the organization called the Salam Project, which focuses on providing security and public safety measures for masjids to counter Islamophobic and uh, public safety issues. Uh, For example, masjid attacks or masjid security uh, problems. Is that a good way of putting it, Yunus? Yeah, that's very accurate. We just try to help each mosque uh, the best that we can, provide them the strategies with which to build a security team, uh, have a good security plan, uh, figure out what are the best rooms for improvement. And we try to uh, provide the congregation kind of the tools in uh, terms of mm-hmm. if there is something bad that's happening, what are the options that you have? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a very uh, important thing. But I mean, before we get into that, how are you doing? Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, obviously, given the last couple of weeks of uh, different events going on, uh, we're seeing a very large rise in uh, these kinds of mosque suspicious incidences or even attacks. So uh, it's been quite busy in general. Uh, unfortunately, we're having, you know, like recently, there's a downtown Toronto mosque where a guy came into a sister section and literally just slept in there for the whole night. And uh, he was like, and, you know, he needed a like the police needed to arrest him and, you know, there's a lot of other incidences just like that, and it's uh, it's definitely been a busy time uh, just trying to help. And obviously, like this is not our full time thing. This is a for all of us. This is kind of a volunteer thing on the side that we do outside of our regular jobs. So uh, it's been an interesting time for sure. No, I mean, th- thank you for that. But I, I actually meant to ask, how's your Ramadan going, or how are you doing in general? Yeah, it's uh, it's going great. Um, I think that um, <laughs> this is the first Ramadan. Or this is one of the first Ramadans that I've had like a, a nine to five, re- like more regular job. So uh, definitely uh, challenging doing tarawih prayers and stuff like that. But uh, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, you know the definitely, rewards yeah. are huge. Uh, I do like the the sense of more meditative spirit and uh, just reading more Quran and stuff during this month. And uh, like I'm just learning. I'm learning so much about different pockets of the community. Uh, doing fantastic work like there's dean support services who's doing uh stuff for uh, uh children with disabilities and there's um, a lot of different uh initiatives for like educating people on the uyghurs on the rohingya and a lot of different oppressed minorities really really cool stuff yeah i mean definitely like that's a, a lot of great work that you do and you know i'm very i think a lot of people and the community is very grateful for a lot of the work that you do um, so I guess, you know, to just more introduce yourself and to, to get a better understanding of kind of what you guys do, what was the origin and kind of the background of the Salam Project? Just so that we can get right into it rather than doing too much intro. Just tell me, like, what is the origin and the background of the Salam Project? How did this begin? Where did you guys come up with this 
focus. So uh, there's a man I want to talk to you about. Uh, his name is Wasim. Uh, I, I won't say his last name just because uh, he, you know, for privacy concerns, we try to, you know, make sure that our members, we don't, we're not too much in the public eye, to be honest, right? Uh, so he works in, uh, he works in uh, public safety, right? And so what happened is that when the Quebec City shooting happened, he felt that, you know, the Muslims in that specific part of the, you know, that specific profession, we had all failed our mosques, right? Because, you know, why hadn't we trained our mosques in order to deal with something like this, right? So he basically started doing this kind of thing since 2017. He was kind of doing it with a couple other uh, people in the law enforcement sphere, and uh, they were basically auditing different mosques and giving presentations out, right? Uh, in the meantime, uh, at the same time, what had happened is that I was in school. So uh, my professors encouraged me to do a, uh, a thesis paper on what can you do to uh, protect a mosque, right? So we did like about a, a study that took a whole year and uh, we basically, uh, I think it was something like 22 something interviews on uh, with different law enforcement professionals, different uh, mosque officials, right? On how can you best prepare a mosque and what's the whole hate crime situation? Uh, from mm-hmm. there, actually the Brampton, uh, City of Brampton Lighthouse Program uh, they had already been in touch with Wasim a lot and they were in touch with me as well, right? And through that, me and Wasim got connected. Uh, after the New Zealand shooting, Wasim basically fa- found out about me and so he reached out to me. And so I've been doing presentations with him and uh, audits and stuff uh, for about three years now since New Zealand. And that's what we're doing. Uh, at this point, I think we've done something like 150 uh, risk assessments and trainings of different mosques that's uh that's kind of where the number stands where we've basically gone to as many as we can and uh, basically giving our three-step program mm-hmm. and so uh you know during your uh, you're doing your master's in emergency management correct yeah uh, so could you elaborate maybe a bit more on your you know your thesis and kind of your focus on research there yeah so it came out of a sense of desperation right it was like you know this is desperation it, for, for what? Like just the, the lack of public safety towards mosques? Yeah, well, contextually, right? If you look at the political context at the time, it was literally Donald Trump had just become president, right? Or he right, yeah, right. he was he was president, right, of the United States and he was saying all this stuff about like, you know, uh, we need to ban all mo- uh, Muslims, right? And uh, you know, a lot of really egregious stuff, right? And there was a, se- a very big sense of foreboding that like North, specifically Western society, had uh, gone, like, essentially embraced a lot of this far-right extreme nationalism, right, uh, where they were basically targeting all minorities, right, with this kind right, of right. hate speech, specifically Muslims, right? And uh, a lot of my friends who are more in the political science sphere, they will tell you about all these different right-wing groups rising in different European nations as well. You can see with the... the uh, popularity of Marine Le Pen, for example, in France, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, different far-right figures in Canada, right? So it was almost like we were bracing for, oh my God, something bad is about to happen, right? And then it happened, right? Uh, We saw something, you know, like, you know, we weren't expecting in Canada of all places, right? We were expecting, oh yeah, some mosque in the US might get attacked or whatever, or, you know, Muslims might get rounded up and, you know, in the street or whatever, right? But really, if if you look at the stats, right? the largest number of mosque attacks 
I'm not sure if it's in like in the world, like in in the Western worlds, but I like I'm pretty sure it's in in North America. The largest number of mosque like these sorts of attacks targeting Muslims are actually in Canada. Right? Right, we have yeah. three specific, very very violent incidences. One, which is the Quebec City shooting, then the uh, IMO stabbing, then the uh, the London uh, the attack, right? And these were all you know targeting specifically Muslims, and they all happen in Canada. So. This sort of stuff really, really, like, you know, uh, was worrying me at least, right? And it was like, oh, my God, what can I do to help, right? And so that's where my professors came in and encouraged me, hey, you should do some formal research on this, right? So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, alhamdulillah, just really happy that we've been able to do that. I think it's it's important to understand that uh, we've only seen an increase. So I don't know if uh, your listeners might be aware, but there's about 300 hate groups in Canada. Right. 300, 300. 300 designated uh, hate groups that uh, make it like, you know, they, they organize for a lot of reasons, but they're usually their main point is uh, targeting minorities because they feel that their way of life is being threatened because of the existence of these minorities. They specifically focus on Muslims. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more, uh, Dr. Barbara Perry from Ontario Tech University, she has a whole department specifically focusing on a hate crime and they they spend they they're 24 7 they're mapping all these groups so you know the origin of the salam project then from what i'm kind of gathering from what you're saying really came about because of the was it the quebec uh mosque attack primarily? yeah yeah that's so, really that's really the big incident yeah so it was sort of a a kind of a kind of a push for resiliency right like it, it was sort of a response to, to what happened and you know the, the salam project in many ways is just sort of a a, a kind of push to say let's make sure that that doesn't happen again yeah and and it's more focused on sort of like the tactical side of things right where you're looking at you know what are the security measures you can put in right um i think that unfortunately what's happened is that i'm not sure if it's because i'm just getting more involved in this stuff or because you know it's just happening in general but i'm definitely seeing like we're seeing rises especially after one of these incidences, there's lots of other incidences that happen almost like where uh, other people get emboldened almost to go like, you know, and start investigating mosques and stuff. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, it's right. almost like there's like an aftershock. Right. And, and you mentioned that there are approximately about 300 or so active hate crime groups. So I'm kind of curious, like, has your group done any you know, kind of focused research on them? And how many of those like 300 hate groups would you say are Islamophobic hate groups or would target Muslims in general? We don't know. So we're not sure, but like what we know, like, so there's a couple of examples I can use, like the three percenters, right? They actually like collect arms and like military weapons and they conduct like training and stuff. Right. So, so just kind of to expand, like who are the three percenters? Like what's their, their kind of focus or background? So like we don't do – so just to be clear, we don't do too much like focused research on them, right, right all right. these different groups. We just know that they exist and this is what they're doing, right? So um, many of these groups, right, the way that they're defined is that the, like they're almost – their identity is the – almost the propagation of this kind of hateful narratives online. So the Yellow Vest movement is a good example where they have 250,000 uh, like supporters on like social media platforms, Right. Uh, there's, so the three percenters I mentioned, uh, they kind of, you could almost imagine them as, uh, as them as sort of like a loosely connected group of people, but then they all gather and they like, you know, conduct this training and, uh, 
some of the stuff is manifested in like they'll do targeted harassment of different Muslim groups. For example, some years ago in Vancouver, there was the Soldiers of Odin. And what they did was that they actually would go to different mosques and harass them. Uh, they said that they were conducting street patrols. What they were actually doing was that, like, if a mosque was having, like, a fair or uh, a charity event outdoors, they would go and start, like, actively harassing them and uh, issuing threats and, like, you know, just walking around outside the mosque, right? And this is what they were doing. And they were basically striking fear into uh, the community, right? Uh, almost kind of like, you know, we're watching you almost, right? Because right, there's almost right. the application of like, yeah, you guys are doing something wrong just for existing and uh, we think you're terrorists, that kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that this is really where you guys in the Salon Project kind of come in, right? Like when a mosque is faced with these sort of kind of abuses or uh, attacks, then like, you know, you guys would kind of show up and kind of help them through it. So I guess my next question is, as much as you can tell me, at least, how do you guys kind of operate in, in the way? Like, you know, what do you guys do when you come to the masjid and kind of like, what's your focus in that? We've got a three-stage program. So what we do is we uh, we start with, obviously beyond initial talks, then what we do is that we do uh, sort of an awareness session for all the congregants, right? If I'm walking to a mosque, how many exits are there? If I'm, it, how, where's the nearest first aid kit? Where's the nearest fire extinguisher? Do you know what your rights are and what you're allowed to do? Uh, you know, that, that sort of stuff, so kind of basic understandings, right? Like, uh, if somebody is bleeding, applying pressure with a cloth is going to make a huge difference in life or death. Right? That's the sort of stuff we focus on in stage one. Stage two right, is a risk right. assessment. So we walk through the mosque with management and we take pictures. Uh, we try, like, you know, obviously it's a challenge sometimes with just the time commitment, but we try to make a whole Word document with a detailed analysis and report of what are the best measures for safety and security that they can take. So, for example, many mosques have emergency exit doors, but they usually have trash and random stuff, construction equipment that's hanging right outside, right next to the emergency exit doors, meaning that you could only get so many people out at a time, right? It would lead to, like, some people getting trampled if everybody was exiting at the same time, right? So... Uh, things like that, things like where do you put cameras, how, like upgrading the alarm system, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Does a certain window need a reinforcement of like plexiglass or acrylic, right? To make sure that uh, if somebody throws a brick at it, it, there won't be like, you know, an incident, right? Right. Then stage three is we do a deeper dive with the volunteers and the management on security training. So we look at the security protocols, having a greeting committee at the front, uh, just to say, hello, uh, just to you know, screen out people who are entering the mosque. Uh, making sure you're focusing on only having one or two entrances and minimizing uh, the areas where people can get into. Right? Uh, these are things that we talk about: crime prevention through environmental design. So, so many mosque security problems could be solved by having better lighting uh, and having a community clean up every once in a while. Right? So, these are right. these are what we focus on. Uh, when you guys go go to a masjid, right? Um, what what do you think is the, the main sort of problem you think a lot of masjids have when it comes to security, or at least you know what what do you think is like the 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 biggest sort of problem you've seen across the many masjids that you've been to? So, look, I I think it's difficult to put a single blanket statement over every single mosque because every mosque is legitimately different, right? Mm-hmm. I could say that it's an issue of not enough volunteers, but then guess what? I've met some mosques recently that 
they're actually very active and they're volunteering, right? So I would say that um, I can I can say what is probably the I, I would say consistency is a probably something that most moths could work on better. Uh, some moths they're only like they're only interested in this kind of stuff after a bad bad something bad has happened. They don't they don't even care about it you know the ninety nine percent of the year. But then oh yeah somebody came in and you know did something suspicious. Then all of a sudden they're interested. But you need to understand that such efforts to build something like this, it takes some kind of consistent effort, right? So it is frustrating at times to. Uh, have that lack of follow through, but I do believe that uh, I do believe that it's something that as long as you have a, have a couple people in each mosque who have some kind of basic awareness, it's easy to sort of like you know have that done over time. Uh, the other thing would be like I mean money is something that obviously you know it would be it would be ideal if we could have government funding for each mosque right or uh, community donations to each mosque, but at a time when mosques are bleeding cash right now they've got a lot of other things to focus on besides security. So uh, it would be, it would be good to have like some sort of like very, very minimal level of uh, funding being given to like, you know, at least grant like walkie talkies and like security vests, some sort of base equipment for their volunteer teams. I, I do believe that security really lives and dies on the strength of how well your volunteers are integrated, right? If they have, you can, you can have a $0 budget, but you have volunteers and, you know, you'll be relatively pretty secure. Whereas you can spend like $20,000 on a state of the art system. But if people aren't learning how to use it properly, then it's basically useless. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think this leads into the, the next point really well, because you were recently featured in a Toronto star article that, that focused on, you know, the lack of funding that the Canadian government has provided through Public Safety Canada to many mosques to ensure that they can, you know, provide the actual public safety that, that's kind of required. And so I'm kind of curious to know, like, can you give any more background information on what these funds are supposed to be? Like, what was the Canadian government's original, I guess, promise to mosques? Well, what did they originally promise to the Muslim community? So there's two separate grants that you want to think about here, uh, specifically within the... So there's the bigger one, which is the Security Infrastructure Program. This is a federal grant. Uh, gives you roughly about fifty percent. Uh, the basically the government matches whatever uh, whatever uh, money you put in. The government will match that, right? In in terms of security, um, it's uh, three things: it's security equipment, security assessments, and then uh, kind of the hate crime training, right? Is what they call it. It's it's uh, basically how to respond to a hate motivated incident, right? Uh, those are the three things that they cover, and the thing is that it's a very complicated, long-winded application process. I'm telling you right now, there are some mosques that where literally an attack has happened, people have gotten hurt, and there was lots of government like you know coverage of it, and like you know people were like you know politicians were there, and yet they still haven't received the funding. Even wow. years later, they still have not received the funding from the government, despite all this public, uh, you know, public spotlight and being on the news and stuff. And the reason, like, and so the thing is, it's, it's a very complicated, uh, it's like, I've had somebody from NCCM tell me that it's, it's one of the most complicated applications they've ever seen. 
And so, wow, yeah. like, it because it's a it like it requires like you know multiple quotes from different contractors for like security cameras, fences, mm-hmm. and then uh, quotes for uh, training from a security company, right? And oftentimes these security companies they're charging like a very significant amount that a mosque cannot simply cannot afford. Right. 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 So yeah, like that that's some of the things that I like uh you know some of the misgivings that I have about it like it really does need to be made more accessible recently there was an ontario security grant uh that was uh you know provided i believe by the ford government and that's like $10,000 lump sum they just give it to you for security reasons right and so that's been made a lot easier to like apply and the good thing is that you can actually do the application save it and come back to it later there's a lot of different things to make it very easy to do comparatively. You still need a ton of documentation. Don't get me wrong, but it's 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 made a lot more user friendly, right? I know some mosques who have successfully gotten that. Uh, Alhamdulillah, they've gotten that security grant, and uh, you know that. But the thing is, it's a one-off, right? So I feel that like you know, the, uh, these are some of the issues that I'm seeing that like you know more funding is needed, right? Uh, but it also needs to be made more accessible, right? So I would rather each mosque get a, a like you know a small fund of five thousand dollars, right? And you can do if you're creative, you can do a lot of five thousand dollars if you know where to put mm-hmm. the money, right? Right. Rather than a really complicated application for fifty percent off a hundred thousand dollars, like that's you know you understand where I'm coming from, right? It's probably mm-hmm. I would I would suggest the government would it would be a lot easier for the government to focus on that. Right. And, and, you know, to, to really streamline the process as well, like, do you think getting rid of maybe this long application process is helpful as well? Like, like what, what was the Canadian, what would you say is maybe the Canadian government's, I guess, thought process with making such a long, you know, winded application when a masjid or a public, you know, public area is asking for security measures? You know, they're not asking for you to renovate like their bathrooms or something. Yeah. They're asking you to make a place more secure. So why is the government, you know, saying to the Muslim community and to mosques that, you know, go through this long-winded application process, even though you're the one that's under a threat? Yeah, so I think part of it is that you want to have transparency. They, they want to do their checks and balances, right? You want to make sure that right, the mosque is right. in their homework. But you need to understand also, like, getting having something that's so complicated that it requires a lawyer to, like, be working on it, like, 24-7, that's not feasible. For most mosques, most mosques Absolutely, can't afford yeah. to get somebody, pay somebody to actually sit. Because you know, one of the mosques that I know, they've actually contracted a lawyer to do it full time. That's literally his job is just to fill out the application process, right? And most mosques cannot do that; they can't afford it, right? So that's part of the thing. I think the government is just trying to have their checks and balances to make sure that the money is not getting wasted. But I think to have it so inaccessible, like I, I feel that there's definitely a mistake there. I know that, for example, ISNA Canada, they've managed to get it. Uh, the IIT and ISNA Canada have managed to get the grant, which is alhamdulillah amazing, right? Uh, but that's because they have people full time that they can employ to do this. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and But both ISNA and IIT, from what I understand, those are larger mosques as well, yeah, right? Yeah, they are. So, so then, like, I, I guess that the problem then is that there's a huge vulnerability if you're a smaller mosque, No. Yeah. Like, how does then, like, how does a smaller mosque or how do communities or or how would you recommend at least communities that are smaller mosques then deal with sort of the application process or kind of, you know, getting the actual funding? Is it better to just go to the Ontario government then and get the the one off lump sum money? Well, that's the thing that that application is no longer open. 
right? So it was only oh, a one-time thing. It was a one-time deal, and we helped a couple different mosques get it. Alhamdulillah, it was good. Uh, but basically what I do is I say, look, if you need any help with that grant, I will help you. I'll help you out with whatever grant you need, right? Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's diff- it's just complicated. With a smaller mosque, I think honestly don't think it's feasible for them to be able to do it. Like you need somebody who's very professional, who has a lot of skill in like, you know, filling out these applications. Like we're talking like, uh, you know, imagine hiring a lawyer for that. Right? Uh, th- that's all that I would recommend from that end. Uh, like it, it's, co- it's, a, it's a complicated process to be like precise because also you're looking at like, oh yeah, we need to build, uh, it's not just like security cameras and alarm systems. We're also talking about sometimes it's, it's renovations that they're looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, you know, you need to build a whole fence that's six foot high. Right. Or right. and then also like security companies, like there's not many security companies out there that offer the actual training. Right. And and the, the training is like apparently it's highly specific. It's specifically towards a hate motivated incident. So like the thing is that a lot of times the application can be rejected just on those grounds. Right. And so I guess then that kind of leads to, to the next question. And that's what kind of like equipment is needed when, when it comes to, you know, masjid security. And, and I know that you mentioned renovations as well, but I'm assuming that would be dependent on the masjid itself. So let's just say like, what's the basic equipment? Like what's the basic kit that you would set up for a masjid to at least have some sort of kind of masjid security? So recently, Dar al-Tawheed, the mosque that was attacked in Mississauga, they actually put a really rapid, quick fundraiser in two days. Uh, they, they raised $700. And what they did was that, uh, I don't know if you might want to display a picture or something, but uh, it was uh, basically they got security vests and walkie-talkies. Like we're talking like uh, like actual tactical like vests to be able to be used uh, for storing different equipment. Right. And so that was with like less than a thousand dollars. They equipped like 15, 20 volunteers with like these safety vests and walkie talkies. Right. That's what I'm looking at in terms of building out your baseline volunteer group. Right. Uh, it's really just equipment for them. I would say it's stuff like whistles, maybe even flares. Right. Uh, and uh, like, there's a couple other items like things like door locking devices. You can get uh, stuff that's available for like forty five to seventy five dollars that uh, can help secure a door. It's essentially a door lock that you can quickly place on any door, right? Uh, these things would be super, super useful, right? Uh, different, uh, like, I th- like, I think the main thing is really communication or walkie-talkies, right? Uh, that's really good. If we're looking into, like, figuring out where you can get more equipment that uh, is at a more affordable price for these mosques and uh, providing that. So that's something we're definitely looking at. But that would be for, like, for a team, that's what we were thinking about. Uh, when it comes to more like infrastructure-based, like equipment, we're, like it's really a camera and alarm system that's integrated that feeds directly into your phone, right? So mm-hmm. that, but that, that's that's you're looking at the thousands. Though I know that right, right. there's certain home uh, systems like Amazon, I think has one called Ring, or uh, like they have their own security uh, yeah, yeah. system. I, th- I think it's Ring, yeah. Yeah, and so that those ones can be you know installed very quickly if you need like a, a very quick solution to it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that that that's that's uh that's very good. I mean, I'd imagine that equipment is pretty expensive. The the more and more kind of expertise you kind of get into it, right? Um, and so then I, I guess you know what would you say uh, in terms of just the congregation itself, right? Because there's obviously a role with being well equipped, but there's also a role of awareness that you talked about before as well, right? Um, knowing your emergency exits and whatnot. 
Um, so when a congregation is at a masjid, you know, what, what, how important of a role does awareness kind of play in, uh, you know, being able to properly respond to a security issue? I think it's actually the most important thing. In fact, I would say I'm not sure whether having volunteers or the congregation itself be cognizant. I'm not sure which one is actually more important, to be honest. That's how important those two things are. They're mm-hmm. a thousand, because the thing is, if you think about the congregation, if you train 50 people in the congregation to be your eyes and ears, all of a sudden they're looking at things from a different perspective. They understand that, hey, if there's a suspicious person, how do I approach that said person? Uh, how do I how do I deem that that person is? How do I report properly? A lot of times, look, people's memories are very faulty often when it comes to stuff like this. So if you're trying to record somebody who's on scene, right, you should be doing that right away, right, in terms of writing down all the details, the description, what they're doing, right? Uh, these things are super, super important because what that does is that that very quickly allows you to understand what's going on, right? So uh, let me walk you through a couple of scenarios. Let's say that uh, somebody, uh, we've had this a couple of times where a, a man in a niqab, he, wear, he pretends to dress up in a niqab and he walks around in a mosque really? in the lady section so, several times, actually. This really? happens a lot. This happens a lot. It uh, happened in Detroit as well. It happened in Etobicoke uh, a couple of years ago, right? And uh, what will happen is that uh, the ladies will actually clue into this and they'll they'll like approach the person, right? And then the person will like sometimes the person runs away. Other times, what happens is that all the ladies just gang up and beat him up, right, and chase him out of the mosque. That's happened. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Uh, that's happened before. That's a, that's a good option. That's not a bad option. Yeah, I mean, like the thing is, like, what are you doing doing that, right? Because they right, they know yeah. exactly what's going on, right? So then reporting that to the mosque management, reporting that to the police, right? All of a sudden, now you can have a response, right? So that awareness piece is so important because I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of examples where the opposite has happened. It's horrific. So, uh, for example, the New Zealand shooter, he wore shalwar kameez and went to the mosque three times beforehand to conduct surveillance. He Mm -hmm. looked at where all the security cameras were. He figured out where the the prayer schedules were. He chose the time of Jummah prayers because he knew that was going to be where the most amount of people would be at the masjid. And then what he also did was that he he flew a drone over the mosque. Really? And, yeah, he flew a drone over the I mosque to take that. pictures. And, uh, you know, he did a ton of other things. He was gathering weapons for a long time. He was planning this out for at least, I think, uh, I believe the police in Quest said something like a couple of years. Right? The Quebec wow. City shooter came into the mosque twice beforehand. And uh, he basically was arguing with the imam. Right? And, you know, the imam didn't report it to anybody else, mostly because I, I have a feeling that uh, they, apparently they, that mosque had had seven incidences beforehand and they had kept calling the police, but the police hadn't been as, uh, I guess the police hadn't been as responsive as they had hoped, right, in getting that to stop, right? So they had kind of just given up. It's almost like they'd just given up on, on doing on doing any reporting. But, you know, had that reporting happened, maybe that would have made a difference. Maybe, you know, somebody would have taken notice of it, right? But we do know right. that a pig's head was left outside the mosque before the attack. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's, a, that's a pretty big warning there, no? Yeah, I mean, we don't know if it's the shooter who did that, but, you know, right. that, that's, pretty, that's pretty out there in terms of, like, you know, a, a red flag. So these are some like warning signs and we see it again and again we see like multiple different mosques where suspicious people are going inside a mosque and 
they are, you know, doing surveillance and stuff, right? And so just that reporting aspect of it is just so important in stopping this, right? Uh, we have, re- uh, in 2019, we had, uh, I think, four uh, males in New York. They actually gathered like 23 guns and they're planning to hit a whole Muslim community, not just a mosque, like a village, right? It's called Islamburg. It's uh, mainly African-American Muslims who decided they wanted to kind of disconnect from the rest of uh, you know American culture, right? And they planned to go and murder every single person there, like 500 people who are living there. And just because a high school student uh, reported something suspicious, uh, New York police, state police, I believe, they were able to arrest them really quickly, right? So right, wow. these, are, these are some examples of times when, you know, a huge difference has been made just by just their active reporting. Uh, not to mention that, like, you know, if you or I are going to the mosque and we're just congregants, right, and we see something bad happening, we can take actions, right? We can get people, warn people to get away from here. We can take all these actions. We don't specifically need any training, right? We don't need to be like, you know, 10 years, uh, 10 year police officer, right? To make, uh, you know, mm-hmm. take action right, against right. it. We can do a lot of things, right? That can make a huge difference. And one of the things we see in a lot of these shootings is that people actually, they freeze. They don't do anything. They just play dead or they freeze or they're cowering in the corner, right? They're assuming the fetal position, right? So what, what, what might be better is like, you know, empowering people to, oh yeah, we can take some actions. We can do something about this, right? You're not powerless, right? And so the, that's the biggest difference that we see when we go and we do these presentations is that people like, the, the, the light bulb strikes that, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not somebody who can, I'm not somebody who's a victim. All the, I don't have to be a victim. I can fight right. back. I, I'm, I'm empowered. I have all these options in front of me. Like, you know, this phone can be used as a weapon if I throw it, right? Um, like, in New Zealand, mm-hmm. the, the guy who stopped the shooting, Abdulaziz Wahabzada, right? He's 48 years old, and he picked, up a, he picked up a credit card machine and threw it at the shooter and chased him around the mosque. The shooter still had guns, but he was too scared. Right, right. So, like, the shooter didn't expect resistance, essentially. He yeah. didn't, and, and many of these shooters don't, like they don't have the training, right? They don't, they're not very well trained or whatever. Uh, they're not people who, um, they're not, they're not people who are hardened like soldiers or anything like that. Right. And so uh, they're typically not ready. They're typically not like, you know, prepared to deal with this sort of stuff. Right. Um, we have other examples where like, for example, a Norway mosque where a guy came in with two shotguns and a body armor during Juma prayer. And then, a 68-year-old Pakistani guy jumped on him and just tackled him to the ground and khalas, mm-hmm. we're done. Right. Right. So right. this is these are the sort of the examples of people fighting back. And like if you tell the community that, hey, you don't need to be scared, because first of all, this is a very low in, like this is a low probability incident. And second of all, if something does happen, you have all the tools in your hands, in your mind to do a lot of things. For example, like a shop, like and, and just knowing your environment is better, like knowing your exit. So, for example, at a shopping mall, uh, if there is something bad happening, run to the back because the back of every shop in a shopping mall, every like business, will usually have a passageway towards the service hallway, right? And so you can evacuate through there. Don't run towards the main, like you know, um, the what is it called, the shopping hall hall, the sh- shopping mall hallway. Right, don't run right, towards right, that. Yeah. Run towards the back of the store because there will be a service corridor at the back and you can exit through that way. Right? Mm-hmm. Little tips like this, these are these are vitally important, right? It's about having, you know, thinking about tools in your toolbox. 
Okay. Yeah. So these are just sort of like the kind of just the things that you can kind of use to immediately kind of respond if, you know, X, Y, or Z issue happens. Yeah. I'm, right? so, I'm, I'm sorry for rambling on that question, but yeah, it's like, it's no, kind no, of like, no, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. Yeah, it's, yeah. No, that was, a, that was an excellent response. Yeah. Like if you have anything more to add, like that, that'd be great as well. Like it's just, I mean, yeah. It's just giving everybody the, t- like, basically you're not hopeless. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and obviously, I mean, not everyone will, uh, has gone through an experience of, of a shooting or whatnot. Right. So, yeah. I think to some degree, I guess you'd admit that there's some psychological response to that as well, right? Like it's a shock and kind of a, a terror in, in the moment, right? And, and like that, that's kind of the, we got to have a way to, I guess, go over that and respond in a proper manner, you would say. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, uh, we don't cover it as much. Uh, we, we haven't covered it as much recently, but like uh, just talking about like breathing, tactical breathing and, uh, you know, uh, committing to the it's called the like the like the kind of observation and uh making a decision kind of about that that decision making loop right that's something that's super important because when you disconnect yourself from the situation right and you breathe and stuff you usually have a better chance of making a good decision during that kind of a crisis right and it, it's it's understandable look at the end of the day this is something that very very few people in human history have to deal have had to deal with right especially not in right. a modern context. You don't have to deal with life-threatening emergencies all the time, right? So being like, you know, under being kind to yourself and understanding, hey, like it, you don't have to be perfect or whatever, right? That's not what this is about. It's not about you being a superhero. It's about just knowing like that those options exist, right? So mm-hmm. I, I don't think like it, it's difficult because I've seen like, you know, me myself being in the field, right? Um, there's been multiple times where like something bad's happened, right? And it's like you freeze. You, there's there's that whole moment of like, holy crap, what's going on, right? And so right, yeah. we recommend that people, you know, take some time and you know practice martial arts. Practice like uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do to, uh, you know, get better at making decisions under stress. But the truth of the matter is that you know at the end of the day, nobody really knows what's going to happen at one of these things. It's just chaos. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very good point, right? Like I, I would admit myself and I'm sure a lot of people who listen to the podcast as well would probably admit that, you know, not many of us have maybe gone through kind of that sort of, uh, I guess, you know, moment. Um, but I, I did want to go back to, to something you, you said earlier. Um, and it was about like the, the suspicious person, right? Like the, the, the kind of identifying who the suspicious person is. Um, but when it comes to something like, uh, you know, identifying in a congregation, like how, how are you supposed to identify uh, who the s- suspicious person is? Because you talked about the, uh, I think it was the Quebec mosque shooter that he showed up in, in a kurta and you know, he went to the congregation. Like, I mean, if I saw someone who was, you know, white skinned and was wearing a kurta, I wouldn't assume that, you know, they're a suspicious person. So how do we really, I guess, identify then who the suspicious person is? So there's a, it's a little bit more of a, this is a very much a subjective answer, right? And it comes down to, this is not really something you can tell with like, you know, there's no hard and fast rule here. But what it comes down to is, is this person doing stuff that raises suspicion? So we're talking about like, there's, there's usually very big red flags, right? For example, uh, there was a guy recently at a musallah who came to the musallah investigated the lady section then went to the prayer area and he pretended to pray he he did three three sujuds right he 
he just did that on the floor randomly. Then he started. Ta- then he took his camera, out, his phone out, and started taking pictures of the security cameras. Right. Then he ran off to two black cars that were waiting for him, and they drove off. Mm-hmm. Right. So to me, like you know, in that case, like you know, that's definitely a suspicious person, right? So one of the ways that we filter out people, right? And you know, if somebody is coming that's new to the mosque, right? Well. And if they if they if they're not talking to people and stuff like that, it's actually our duty as a Muslim to go and say salam to them. That's one of the reasons why Wasim called it the Salam Project, was because many of our security issues would be solved if we just said salam to each other more often, right? So, like you know, say hi, like how are you doing, right? And you know, ask questions and stuff, right? Somebody with ill intent is going to like their their cracks are going to show very quickly, right? Because they're going right, to want to right. avoid and stuff like that. So you can actually invite them. Hey, like, you know, we have an open house this day. Uh, here's the visitor form, right? And if you want to learn more about the religion and stuff, if you want to learn more about this mosque, right, you can come. Like, there's a dinner this day, right? Uh, you can come that day, right? Uh, and so that basically, you know, just the act of signing a form, a lot of people who are criminals, they will, they'll just back off as soon as you, you have to, like, they have to sign any forms, Right. Because they're not sure of what, like, you know, what they're leaving behind that could be identify them later if they're if they are planning something, right? So that's something that we think about, right? So having a greeting committee that's trained to do this is is very important, right? Uh, I'll tell you right now that if you go to any bank or most shopping or shopping areas or uh, different commercial facilities, right, there's usually somebody at the front, a greeting committee, and that greeting committee, their function is uh, obviously to say hello to people, make them feel welcome. But also, uh, additionally, um, additionally, uh, try like you know, filter out. Does this person have criminal intent, right? And it's very difficult to do that when you like. But it's more of a thing of a gut reaction, right? Because if somebody's doing stuff that's completely out of the ordinary, that's your time to you know you approach the person. Then you're making sure that you're reporting this to management right. and maybe police, right? Uh, I'll give, yeah. yeah. So like, I mean, there's other examples that I can show, uh, share if we, if 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 we're not running too. No, no, we're not running low on time at all. Yeah. Please go ahead. So for example, there's one Masala that I know where a woman came and during Friday prayers and demanded to be praying with the men. She wanted to pray side by side with the men. And uh, she basically like kept arguing and making threats, violent threats and stuff like that. Police were then called and then what happened was that as soon as the police were there, she started pretending like she couldn't speak English. She started, um, she started acting all innocent and crying and like, you know, making up all these sob stories and stuff. And when the police asked her if there's anybody with you, she said, no, I'm all alone. Meanwhile, there was a car in that same parking lot and uh, it was waiting for her. Right, somebody was there in the car waiting for her to finish, and then uh, they would drive off, right? And and so she she mm-hmm. actually pretended that it was a mental health issue. She pretended that she was a mental health patient. Imagine that to get out of trouble, right? Okay. Yeah. So so stuff like that that raises a huge like you know, or if somebody's like you know, like you know, trying to get close to the donation boxes for no reason, right? Or if like you know, some we've had some people steal donation boxes. These are some examples of like suspicious incidences, right? It's not just a random person walking in and saying hello or whatever. It's you know they're doing actions, but they're not doing anything that's straight up illegal. I see. Yeah. 
So it's always sort of like a, there's a thin line, right? Like if yeah. the person is doing things to basically harass or bother others, then chances are, you know, they're a suspicious person. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and, and as well, I guess you'd also say that masjids are private property. So there's no, you know, you, you can't say it's public property. That's everyone's allowed on it. Right. The masjid yeah. can say, I guess, to some degree, who's allowed and who's not allowed on the property. Well, I'll tell you, even places with that are technically public property, like so stuff like hospitals, shopping malls, government buildings and stuff like that. Guess what? There's rules and regulations around suspicious activity, right? Right. Because right. so so it follows suit that a mo- like, you know, if somebody's acting suspicious in those locations that, you know, if the same thing were to happen to a mosque, like, you know, we can fall, we can generally look at these protocols and stuff that they already have. And just apply them at the mosque. Obviously, there needs to be uh, kind of uh, adapting it to the mosque environment, but there, there's definitely like you know precedent for this that we can look at. Mm-hmm. No, and you know that, that's a those are some excellent points. But you know, I kind of wanted to sort of uh, I guess wrap up this section right here and kind of how can uh, you know the general community kind of support you guys and, and you know your project? Like you guys take uh, do you guys take any kind of support or any sort of volunteer help from others or kind of is awareness uh, of uh, you know masjid security the best kind of way to support the salam project so i think the first thing like okay so uh, i want to highlight uh, the there's a couple of different groups in canada that are actually kind of looking at it from a more grassroots and strategic level so like nccm uh, the muslim advisory council of canada uh, Canadians Against Oppression and Persecution. There's there's a couple other organizations. Uh, Justice for All is a really good one, uh, and they've recently come under attack by uh, the RSS, mob, the BJP mob, right? Because they're doing this work, right? Uh, and they're talking about Islamophobia and different like things, right? So, my recommendation is that you actually look like the average person. It's it's zakat eligible. Donating to these organizations is really, really important and supporting them and, uh, you know, liking them, their stuff on social media, spreading them to your friends and family, right? These guys are doing the grassroots movement strategic level, right? Uh, it's really important that we support them because they are challenging the things like, you know, what's going on in Palestine from a Canadian foreign policy perspective, for, uh, what's going on with the Uyghurs, right? Uh, these different things, like, they're actually like on the front lines of doing that right and what's going on with bill 21 in quebec with islamophobia these sorts of initiatives are vital right and unfortunately the average muslim canadian they'll spend a lot of money to help build a new mosque but the average donation of a muslim canadian towards projects of islamophobia is less it's per year it's less than the cost of a big mac wow yeah Yeah. that's quite low yeah so so all of us need to be donating more right uh, if you look mm-hmm. at our colleagues in the Jewish sector, right, they've got four or five organizations that are advocacy groups that are in the right. multi-millions of dollars, right? And, you know, obviously some of that is specifically around supporting Israel, right? So right. in the same yeah. way, NCCM, which is a very, very shoestring budget comparatively, right, they need more support, right? They need to, you know, you need to pay people to get the, like, you know, to advocate for the Muslim community, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is that all of our information is open source. So uh, anybody who wants to spread it out will provide you the, all the, the PowerPoints. The, uh, we have a guide that's very user-friendly, right? Um, that's like, you know, kind of trying to describe how you set this all up, right? Uh, we were recently featured in uh, the Canadian uh, Muslim COVID-19 Task Force, the guidelines for Ramadan, 
right? So our guide mm-hmm. was featured on there as well uh, in terms of like uh, the more security context. Right? So these right. are things that we we can do is just spreading the knowledge. Right? It's not really about the Salam project itself. It doesn't. We don't really care if this thing is successful or not. What really matters is that if the mosques actually have the knowledge to begin with, right? Um, like, I mean, we don't take donations. We're a pro bono organization. It's fully volunteer, right? So um, we suggest you donate to the different, like, you know, we, we recommend that you donate to other organizations that, like, you know, are doing this really good work, right? Um, that's, I think, that's, like, the most important. But the other thing we'd, we'd appreciate is that uh, if, uh, you know, anybody who feels that their mosque is not uh, prepared or not safe or anything like that, just get in contact with us. Uh, you can, like, you know, uh, you can get in touch with me on Instagram or Facebook anytime and uh, we'll try to help you out, right, the best that we can, right? And then we'll, and then if we can't help, we will get people in touch who can help. No, and, you know, that, that that's perfect, right? Like, uh, I'm sure that there's uh, a lot of people out there that probably are unaware that, you know, Muslim security organizations exist and, and of course, yeah, like I, I totally agree with the importance of helping the NCCM because I know like we've talked a lot about this, about just how underfunded uh, some Muslim organizations really are. Um, I, I guess then my, my next point here is, um, you know, in terms of like the response to security issues as well, um, obviously the police play a big role in this, right? Um, and so it's important to really ask is, you know, what has been the role of the police within Canada? And, and of course, you know, the police are obviously kind of a, a different, uh, it depends on obviously what region or maybe country you are in, or sorry, uh, what region or province you're in. Um, so what has sort of been the response in, in your opinion, let, let's say at least here in, in Ontario, since it is the most populist response, uh, what is what has been the kind of response of the police to incidents of hate crimes or just mosque security incidents? Okay, so uh, just to disclose, first of all, I am um, just to disclose any potential biases I might have, uh, I am on the Toronto Police Muslim Consultative Committee, so I am like kind of like I volunteer with Toronto Police, right? So I think that it's both. It varies a lot, right? It's I I would say in Ontario, it's it it depends, and I think that police units in general are getting better at this. Uh, their hate crime units are. Uh, like they're dedicated specifically towards helping different communities who are oppressed. And the idea of the Muslim community being targeted a lot, that's something that has really seeped in. Right. Um, I, I will say that a lot of it depends on the actual community's relationship with their local police force. Right. So I know some, some uh, mosques that guess what, they literally just have to make one WhatsApp text and, uh, the division, like the person who's in charge of that division of that police service, they will actually, you know, get more police officers just on scene there for the next week, right? Let's say, let's say, let's say that for Tarawi prayers for a whole week, uh, people are feeling scared because of recent events, right? Like there's been shootings and stuff, right? So because of the relationship that's been built, police will get people there right away and they will like, you know, be safeguarding that place, right? So a lot of it depends on the mosque's willingness to establish more relationship with the police. And that means, you know, hey, invite your neighborhood officer to your iftar parties, right? Um, tell, police right that, yeah. tell police that, you know, hey, if you ever want to, like, you know, do your nightly reporting, right? Uh, you, you, like, police oftentimes have to stop over and do nightly reporting in their cars, right? Um, you know, they can use your mosque parking lot right, any time of the day, right, to do that, right? 
this actually does d- double because first of all, no mosque is gonna. Uh, uh, first of all, if a police car is in a mosque area, guess what? It's definitely not a target, right? Uh, right. Yeah. So, definitely. So, so that accomplishes two things, right? Because, and then also, obviously, it's providing the police a service, right? Oh, and guess what? No police officers ever gonna say no to food, right? And they, <laughs> and they, they really right. love, yeah, they really love getting invited over for food and stuff, and like you know, talking, you know, maybe even get police to do presentations at the mosque and stuff, right? So these are all things that, um, you know, the police have the structures in place for more and more community engagement. They want to do that stuff, but. The thing is, is that a lot of it depends on the community itself reaching out to the police, right? That's what I've seen. I, I do know that there's definitely like rooms for improvement on all sides of it, right? There's definitely, it's the, nothing's perfect when it comes to this kind of thing, right? Uh, lots of, you know, there's definitely, definitely areas where people can improve, right? But I do think that going forward with a strategy like that, that's probably like one of the better, like, you know, ways to do it. The stuff that I've seen that's worked. There's there's definitely mosques that I've seen that have a really good relationship with the police, and then there's others that you know there's a lot to work on. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, perfect. Uh, that that's uh that's an excellent thing, and uh, and I'm sure that like it also uh, I guess like the, the last question that I have here is then like I I guess like it's also uh, maybe an important thing for a masjid in general to just sort of have a good line of communication right with with the police right just sort of a, a friendliness with the police as well. So I'll tell you right now, when it comes to like this relationship building and stuff, it's thing is the mosque doesn't recognize a random, like, you know, non-emergency line or unit or whatever. Right. They'll recognize the individual police officers. Right. So the right. thing is actually to like, you know, talk to individual police officers and that's how you establish a relationship. Right. Because uh, then, then when you know the kind of the support is needed, the emotional support, they know who to call, right? So uh, that's what I would recommend. It's like it's kind of like see, the thing is relationships when it comes down to it's not really organization to organization; it's individual to individual, right? You you see it mm-hmm. several times when like let's say that you want to connect to let's say I don't know uh, you want to connect with uh, an organization, right? You'll go to the person that you know within that organization. And you know that it's you know that this is for sure because when that person, if that person, let's say, leaves the job and goes to another job, right? All of a sudden, you have to rebuild those relationships from scratch, right? So, so doing that is a really good idea. Um, and you know, I think police definitely have the structures in place to do it, and they can definitely do it uh, on the side of if you want to actually put money towards it. Like, uh, 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 different police services will have what's called a paid duty. A service so that's like you can basically pay uh, police officers to be on site if you feel that's like a high risk situation right if there's been recent mosque right. attacks or whatever you can get police to stand by around your mosque right and they can even they have a lot of other free services like they can do an audit as well right? a risk assessment as well they can also do kind of like a hate crime training as well they do all these things right so these are important things that you guys want to think about Okay. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, yeah, I think that that's all been great. Um, I think, uh, about an hour in, so I think this is a good place to maybe end today's recording. Um, I just wanted to thank you again so much for uh, agreeing to do the interview and for all the uh, wonderful insight that, that you shared. Uh, it's really been great talking to you. I think I rambled on way too long for some of the questions, but yeah, so I apologize. It's something I'm still working on. So no, no, I, I, that's fine. Like that's totally fine. Like, um, you can ramble on as, as long as you want. Like, uh, I'm sure a lot of the information was things that probably people have not heard before. So uh, it was probably very informative for a lot of people. Um, 
So I guess, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, also, um, you you said uh, earlier that you were also uh, helping with a lot of charities or whatnot. I was wondering if uh, you wanted to maybe share uh, any charities or whatnot that uh, you wanted to give a, a quick shout out to. Uh, well, no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't so much the charities I'm helping out with. It's more just in general. Like I was talking about, like the, I've just learned about these different organizations, right? Like there's like a lot of organizations that. Um, I found out about this Ramadan, right? That like, it's like, wow, like I didn't know that was, uh, first of all, it's like, wow, that wasn't an issue or wow, I didn't know there was an organization actually doing this work, right? So yeah, I mean, specifically, I've I've partnered with Droplets uh, of Mercy uh, this Ramadan and uh, we're just trying to raise some money for uh, the different Uyghurs. So uh, even a dollar, like, I mean, if you donate $1, right, Canadian, that translates to about 11.6 Turkish lira, which equals about like two bags of rice, Right. So for those those Uyghur refugees in Turkey who are supporting, that makes a huge difference to them. Right. So uh, we've been trying to do that. Alhamdulillah. Like uh, uh, and, you know, we've got like 20, 30 people on this team of like people on social media and stuff like that who are gathering donations. And Alhamdulillah, we've raised like so much money. So uh, just really, really proud to be part of this like team and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's um, it's that. And there's also like, you know, a couple of like I mentioned NCCM as well, like. I think they're really important to donate to. And also um, uh, Dean support mm-hmm. services. Dean does like, you know, the, the, one of the things that our community doesn't really talk about much is disability awareness. Right. So donating right. to that yeah. is, is super important. So those are the things that I'd recommend. You know, there's a lot of other organizations like Yakin Institute, Islamic relief, uh, human concern international. They're doing fantastic work pretty much every day. And uh, they've put, they've just done so much that um, is vital for other people's lives. So uh, that's all I'd like to highlight. No, I mean, perfect. Yeah, that, that that's fantastic. Uh, again, thank you so much for uh, coming uh, to the podcast and, and for doing an interview. Um, I owe you one. Uh, so uh, thank you so much. Um, I guess uh, it's time for, uh, or I mean, I guess it's time to get ready for the iftar now, right? You, you got a, you got anything special for iftar today? Uh, we had Chung Chung's rice dogs yesterday, so I don't know. Uh, I have to figure something else out now. You had you had what? I had Korean uh, corn dogs. My wife, Korean, my, oh, my, my wife really likes Korean corn dogs, so we uh, we got the ones. Uh, the, you have to be careful because much of it is not halal. But um, the uh, like you can do full cheese or like full veggie corn dogs, and like they have got like sweet potato out on the outside. It's amazing. Truly, truly mm-hmm. fantastic and definitely not healthy, but, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't think any iftar has ever been healthy, right? Like, all we eat is like samosas and pakora anyway, so. Oh, man, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a, that's another struggle. That's the second big struggle of Ramadan, so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a after Ramadan weight loss. Yes. We're both going to have to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right, then. Um, yeah, thank you again so much. Uh, I guess that's the third thank you I'm going to give you. Um, thank you. Uh, oh, that's a fourth one uh, for uh, coming well, to the you. podcast. Uh, I'm sure, you know, really appreciate it. Um, and again, you know, if you guys do have any uh, questions, uh, they can reach you out on Instagram, right? Uh, Instagram your, uh, and uh, Facebook. Uh, just my name, a first name dot last name. So that's better. And okay. I just I, I do want to appreciate like all the different podcasts uh, that you, you, you produce. Right. It's uh, it's been very informative, a lot of them. And while I can't listen to all of them, like I usually <laughs> put them on and I let my family listen to them and they actually really enjoy it. It's uh, it's super, super informative. Sometimes we're actually listening yeah, to your no, podcast while you. we're preparing iftar. 
Oh, okay. Well, yeah. thank you. I didn't know I was a iftar listen podcast. Yeah, yeah it's the best. Pra- it's the you. best thing to do while prepping. You know, yeah, while cutting all the fruit. That's so. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow, I I had no idea that, that was even a thing. But thank you. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll add that in my bio that I'm an iftar friendly podcast. Iftar friendly, yes. Um, thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, oh, uh, also I, I almost forgot a uh, salon project has a, um, social media page as well. Right? Uh, we do have a social media page. Um, it's connected to my Facebook page. Uh, we're still working on it. Um, we're also, there's, um, we are actually thinking about developing, uh, almost like a group that would, uh, almost be like an intelligence network. So, uh, not not nothing fancy, but essentially all the different mosques can talk to one another on that group and like provide information on different security threats, right? So right. that would be that would be kind of like that's the next step that we're heading in, and it would be open to the public, but it's kind of like there would be a very strict admin uh, policy on like what can be posted because uh, we're trying to like make it so that it's more about information sharing on okay this happened here, right? Uh, what can we learn from it? Or uh, this is the security tip of the week for example. So uh, the, that's mm-hmm. that's something that we're also working on. So stay tuned for that. Okay, yeah, perfect. You know, alhamdulillah, uh, that, that sounds amazing. Um, so yeah, with that, uh, I'll, uh, I guess that's the conclusion of today's episode. Um, thank you guys all so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support. Uh, you can always find me on Instagram and on Twitter. It's at MIB Podcast. That's M-I-Y-B Podcast. And as well as you guys can find me on any podcast host, Um, If you guys did enjoy today's episode, please remember to leave a like and follow the podcast. I'll be trying to post more podcast episodes like this where I interview more expert people like Eunice. uh, And so we can kind of get a better understanding of sort of the issues that go around uh, the modern Muslim. Um, But with that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again.